Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week of heavy action both in plain view and behind the scenes in the investigations of 1-6 at home and the war of Russian aggression in the Ukraine. The 1-6 committee voted out contempt referrals for Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino, who have stiff-armed them with meritless privilege claims. Now they go into the twilight zone of the Department of Justice, which continues to consider the similar referral of Mark Meadows from four months ago. Meanwhile, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner joined the 800 or so witnesses that have cooperated with the committee, adding to the wealth of as yet unknown material that the committee is sifting through in preparation for much anticipated public hearings likely to begin next month. The U.S. and NATO are determined to avoid being drawn into war with Russia, but that still leaves, in addition to sanctions and supplies, a wealth of gray zone warfare in cyberspace and foreign intelligence to push back hard on Putin. The war counsels a careful eye on China, which is aligning itself with Russia at the level of propaganda, but remaining much more arm's length about Russia's actions on the ground. To explain the turbulence and what's going on beneath the surface in the landscapes of law enforcement and national security, we have three of the brightest and most experienced analysts in the country, and they are. Frank Figliuzzi, a former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, where he served for 25 years. He is the author of The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. He's also a national security analyst for NBC News and host of the excellent and highly recommended The Bureau podcast and proud to say a regular on Talking Feds. Frank, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm glad we could uh, do this again. Norm Orenstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, the co-host of AEI's Election Watch, contributing editor for the National Journal, a prolific author, and everybody's go-to expert for anything Congress-related. He co-wrote the bestseller One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported, which I guess might be changing pretty soon with Title 42. You know, he must get tired of hearing this, but I don't get tired of saying it every time he's on, which I'm so happy to say is frequent. He has been named one of the top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy Magazine for diagnosing America's political and congressional-driven dysfunction, which I think has only gotten worse. Norm Ornstein, thank you very much for being on Talking Feds. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and Asha Rangappa, the Director of Admissions and Senior Lecturer at Yale's University Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where she also teaches national security law and related courses. She's a CNN contributor, a CAFE contributor, an editor for Just Security, and not least, a former FBI special agent where she specialized in counterintelligence investigation. Asha, it's been a while. Thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you for having me back. All right. Lots going on, especially in the national security area, or at least the sort of areas with undertones of national security. So I thought we would 
deal with them in two big blocks today, domestically at home with the January 6th investigations and committee, and then over to Ukraine and the war of Russian aggression. So let's start with the pretty big week for the 1-6 committee. This week, the House votes to recommend Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro for criminal contempt of Congress. Recall, they joined two other people, Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows, DOJ came through with a indictment for Bannon right away, but Meadows, they've said nothing, and it's been more than four months. How does anybody see it going with Navarro and Scavino? Hey, I've just been taken by the degree to which Navarro has been all over TV pontificating about things he'll now claim he can't talk about. And has written a book about it, right? Yeah, indeed. So this is getting to the point of silliness, and I think DOJ needs to move quickly on Navarro, perhaps less so for Scavino, but I think there's a compelling case for both of them to be held in in contempt. And I think it's in the interest of justice to move faster than DOJ has been moving on these guys. Meadows is complicated. And I, I could see some kind of splitting of the baby happening with Meadows or Meadows just not being held in contempt because of his proximity and official role with the president. But the bottom line is this, privilege doesn't apply to criminal acts, plannings, strategizing. DOJ's got to make that crystal clear or this is going to go on forever. Yeah. Well, and also privilege doesn't apply to any of the information that Meadows has, at least after the Supreme Court. But there's this nettlesome possibility that he has a separate claim of testimonial immunity. I don't know, Norm, Asha, any sense or tea leaves about what's taking so long with Meadows? Yeah. I mean, my sense is that Maybe he has some colorable claim of privilege in there, but I think that on that spectrum of these other people, with Bannon being at one end, they clearly does not. He's kind of at the end where maybe he does. But I agree with Frank that I think that there appears to be, not just with these contempt investigations, but in general, when it comes to Trump and his inner circle, my gut is that they seem to be reticent to really test the limits of some of these constitutional immunities and protections and presidential immunities and protections, et cetera. And I think that this is not the time to shy away from just having the court say what the law is. There are reasons sometimes when you don't want to test those things because you don't want to like set in stone big proclamations about the parameters of presidential authority or power. but. I think we're past that stage. I believe this with a number of things. Like, I think that's true of obstruction of justice. You know, can the president obstruct justice? We need to know the legal answer to that just so that we can then know how to move forward as a country in terms of closing that gap if the answer is no. And if the answer is yes, then let's just get that out of the way and move (laughs) forward. That's my opinion. And I think there might be some legal navel gazing at the Department of Justice. And I think that. That is not going to be healthy for us in the long run. My sense of it, Harry, is that they're relying heavily on a raft of old old LC memos that should not be as relevant now because this is really a different case. And I would hope that they would have already begun to reconsider some of those if that's what they're going to be doing. But in a larger sense, you can, if you're subpoenaed, and you don't want to testify, and you think you've got a good reason, you can go and refuse to answer the questions. 
You can uh, plead the fifth. You can plead executive privilege. You can then go back to the courts and see whether those things are applicable. To not show up at all, to give a middle finger to this process, it seems to me is clear evidence of contempt. And I think it's true of Mark Meadows as well, precisely because we're looking at criminal behavior here, at least alleged criminal behavior. We're clearly looking at violations of the law. And there is no reason I can see why Meadows has any ability not to go and at least appear in front of the committee. And if you begin to establish a principle that you can refuse to even appear and not be held in contempt, we're headed down yet another slippery slope. And uh, I just don't think the Justice Department can act as if this is a normal investigation. This is extraordinarily abnormal and dangerous and existential for our democracy, period. Yeah, you're getting a lot of head shakes. And of course, these hoary OLC memos are actually about the courts and up to the Supreme Court did away with any claim of executive privilege for Meadows or anyone here. But there's this vestigial claim of maybe not showing up at all. And there are some OLC memos that have been repudiated, at least by one court, and they but they stuck to it. So is the department or Garland thinking either, well, is that our policy, the way Mueller had to eat the policy of the Department of Non-Indicting that sitting president, or does it somehow bear on his guilt? I want to go back for a second to what Frank said about Navarro and Asha, because I'm particularly worried, actually, about Scavino in this sense. I think he and Meadows are really close to irreplaceable. Scavino is at Trump's shoulder all during the six. He knows exactly what calls were being made during this gap and the like. And my concern, now that they have referred him for contempt, is he's sort of out of the process the way Meadows is. I think the department needs to be aggressively looking at investigating him, for example, for obstruction in a way that can put bigger pressure. He may well be ready to do a year for the boss, right? But 15 years or 20 years on obstruction would be something different. So there's a tangible loss to letting him go and putting in the contempt route. But to clarify, Harry, you're suggesting that the refusal to comply with the subpoena be investigated as an act of obstruction. No, thanks for giving me a a chance to clarify. No, look, I think it's a solid contempt case and it's hard for him to cloak himself in this putative and kind of bogus theory that Meadows is in. No, I think he should be investigate for his role in 1-6. They've begun this investigation. They should be working up in a way that produces real leverage because now that he's out of the congressional side of things, we're not going to get his evidence unless I think they really put the screws to him, I think would be the prosecutorial term. On the other hand, 800 people they have gotten evidence from and this week, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Ivanka, we're told, testified for many hours. What do you guys think about that? We presume they're not going to try to bury the former president, but what potential does their testimony have to really advance the investigation? Look, Ivanka and Jared have consistently attempted to remain above the fray. I don't believe they've succeeded. That's that's my opinion. 
But I think they're trying to have it both ways. We're cooperative. We're all for the rule of law. But we want to stay in the Trump's good graces. They have some ambitions, you know, perhaps maybe it's just staying in the social circles that they're in. But I think that's what this was about. I think it was about trying to have it both ways. I do think that they're not skilled enough to sit for eight hours of questioning and not screw up. And by that, I mean, I think inevitably they had to give up some things, whether they meant it or not, that are probably going to hurt some people. And I'm not sure they thought that through, or they just don't care that there are going to be people they've thrown under the bus. Likely not dad, but I just think eight hours of questioning is fraught with peril. And I think I think someone's going to regret this. And eight hours of questioning after they already have, what did you say, 800 witnesses worth of information. I mean, right. you just don't have a lot of room to fudge and obfuscate at that point. And even an attempt to save daddy may end up being lying to Congress. So they are walking a very, very fine line, especially not knowing what the committee already knows. So I I hope that they had some good lawyers there. And I completely agree with Frank that this is an attempt to reputation launder, to Mm -hmm. distance themselves. I think that there have been these very strategically placed articles every now and then about how... Ivanka is sending food to nice her, and you know, centrist whatever, doing, and whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's got some, you know, humanitarian thing she's got going on. Frankly, I think she has political ambitions. I I think that she's got a little taste of what it is to be in power. And I think she wants it. And she's not a complete dummy in the family. So she understands that probably the stench of her dad's administration is going to eventually be something that she needs to distance herself from if she wants to have a long-term political future. Maybe not even in the Republican Party. I mean, who knows what she has going on, but I think she has political ambitions and this is really a part of that strategy. So I, I want to come back for a second, following on what Asha said, to the contempt issue. One of the main powers of holding powerful people in contempt is that it means that the underlings have even more of an incentive to be completely honest. Yes. This is what we've seen so often with these kinds of investigations. You're going to get people who are making 30 or 40 or $50,000 who are in the White House, and they're going in and out of meetings, and in some cases they're not policy people at all, but they're there, they're hearing things. And if you don't cooperate, you could be ruined financially. And you might end up going to jail. You're not going to get the representation. The more they get from these other interviews, the more it puts even people like Ivanka and Jared in some jeopardy. And of course, with eight hours, it's not clear that they can both get their stories completely in sync. Now, I'd add one other thing, which is I know of the special relationship between Ivanka and her dad, uh, which gives me the creeps uh, as it does so many others. But she really is her father's daughter, which means she is amoral in the same sense that he is. She has no compunction about putting others into jeopardy. Maybe even eagerness, right? They've got a lot of enemies in the White House, especially Jared, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, she might protect her father, but only up to a certain point. So if we can see instances where the family members themselves begin to eye each other with suspicion, and remember, she's got jeopardy in other cases, as do the other Trump kids. 
the stench that surrounds the inaugural funds, a huge sum of money that uh, went missing, that was misused in other places. And it certainly appears that Don Jr. committed perjury when he talked about what was happening there. All of them are involved with that. There are going to be other instances, and I would sure hope the Justice Department would begin to use those kinds of levers to get to the bottom of this as well. Hey, speaking of the Justice Department, I'd like to talk a little about the relationship between the two investigations and exploit, if possible, Frank and Asha's background. So all kinds of members of Congress are getting pretty bold about criticizing the department and the attorney general for being maybe overly methodical or, as Asha put it, navel-gazing. You have any sense where the Bureau is on this? Any sense that they chafe in the same way members of Congress do and think the department needs to be getting more aggressive? Look, I'm paying close attention to what you described as the kind of increasing frustration uh, we're seeing from members of Congress with DOJ, and I'm I'm worried about it. With regard to the Bureau, there have been some signs that are also disturbing. You know, Jim Comey, gosh, maybe three, four weeks ago, authored a column or an opinion piece. You know, he's saying, hey, I'm hearing through the grapevine that there are FBI agents who don't think January 6th was so bad and don't want to pursue this to the ultimate end. And you guys better snap in, that kind of a thing. And a lot of people took, including myself, quite frankly, took umbrage with that because, hey, you know, Jim, um, <laughs> really coming coming from you now, you're, you're going to tell us how to do things. That That's great. But I have to tell you, there are some signs in some people I'm talking to that, yeah, there's at a certain levels, they're like, yeah, we really, we're not all in on this. And I have to tell you, I saw a posting from some retired FBI agents when Bill Barr started doing the rounds on media, pushing his new book. And a couple of agents who served on his detail, you know, for those listeners who don't know, the FBI isn't in the personal protection business, except for only two people, the FBI director and the attorney general of the United States. So two agents posted something on, on social media that said, essentially, hey, buy Barr's book. We were on his protective detail. We think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He is a true patriot. He tried to help the FBI, and he's tried to help justice, and he's not what the media is portraying to be. I got really spooked by that. So I don't know what that says about the Bureau writ large, but I'm, it's clear that there's an agent population or recently retired, or according to Jim Comey, active duty, who's not all in on this. Let me just stick with you for one second, Frank, because you had this pretty startling article this week where even more than that, retired and current agents having a pretty big role. I, I, I saw the 13% figure bandied about in participation in chat rooms full of all kinds of hate-filled commentary and statements that the January 6th attacks were justified. What the hell was that? Right. So Jeff Stein, who runs a reporting system and a blog called Spy Talk, he's got a great podcast. He's a veteran intelligence reporter, and his story has not been amplified enough. And I, I wanted to get this out. His story is this, that he has talked to people, including an administrator of, of an intelligence community chat room, or plural chat rooms. And for those who are wondering, wait a minute, in the intelligence community has chat rooms? Well, there's just like scientists, intelligence professionals, especially intelligence analysts, have a real need to collaborate. 
Did you see that intercept? What do you think of this? And they need to do that in a classified environment. So the intelligence community sets this up. Well, it's in some cases, particularly a site called eChirp, which is kind of like the intelligence community equivalent of Twitter. Apparently, it's just rife with not only hate speech and anti-Islam and anti-this and that, but also a pro-January 6th. And so now it's come to light. The House and Senate are aware of this reporting. They say they're looking into it. But the point of my column was, if the House and Senate have to tell you how to run your agencies, it's too late. And, and the directors in the DNI need to clean this up. And there, I think there was a lot of NSA and CIA uh, members on, on this chat room. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the people who are supposed to protect us from the threat have perhaps become a threat. Now, I don't know what the numbers are like. I pointed out in the column, Harry, that 13% of those arrested for January 6th have been military or law enforcement. Now we're creeping into the intelligence community with evidence of this chat room. But it's an example of how deep the MAGA movement has penetrated into our institutions. We're talking about strange cases. We had one this morning where apparently a couple Pakistani nationals may be involved with Pakistani intelligence, posed for several years as federal DHS agents and fooled federal law enforcement. Did anybody see that? And what the hell? To me, this is linked with the other subject we were talking about, because this gets to the ethics and culture of an agency, because as disturbing as it is that you potentially had two foreign intelligence agents, officers posing as law enforcement and getting information, what struck me in these pieces is the number of federal agents who were accepting all of these free gifts and thinking that it was fine. And I mean, Frank, am I missing something? Don't you have to like disclose that stuff? <laughs> like is when somebody gives you a, a free apartment and a $40,000 whatever TV or whatever it was drone, yeah. don't you start thinking That's not asset forfeiture, right? <laughs> like that's a clue. In the FBI we call that a clue, right? Yeah, you're you're supposed to file a change of address form. I know that, but <laughs> uh... You know, there's reporting just coming out as we speak that one of these two guys that's been arrested for impersonating is saying the other guy, the co-defendant, funded all of this, but we don't know where the funding came from. So this, right. this is getting worse. I mean, you're buying luxury condos for secret service agents, and you're not quite sure where the money is coming from yourself. I'm getting concerned that, you know, there's been talk that there may be Iranian IRGC involvement with these guys. What a mess. This was the Secret Service, and Carol Leonig's book pointed out that there is a really sick culture within the Secret Service that has been there for some time, and that's of great concern to me because of the people they're supposedly protecting. So that's another part of this that can leave one uneasy. You know, we've had evidence for a long time that white supremacists before MAGA were infiltrating law enforcement agencies, police and others. And it's not clear we have done anywhere near enough to scope that out and begin to clean house. But I'd come back to one other thing that's puzzled me now for five years, and that's Rudy Giuliani's involvement with New York FBI agents, where he said openly on television that he was getting information, and the big thing was about to drop, and then it was Anthony Weiner's computer and emails. We know that Giuliani's devices were all seized. This was a long time ago. We have heard crickets about it. I would think that there's a real possibility that they're going to know something about those kinds of relationships. 
And if so, we're going to have a huge set of scandals on our hands. Or if we don't hear about it, it's another scandal. Yeah, that's a really great point. I have been struck, and it's been super red flaggy to me, that there is no apparent coordination on any, like, however hundreds of witnesses between DOJ and this committee. And if you go back, you go back to Iran-Contra, you go, you know, look at even, you know, we saw the the conflicts that happened there and the lessons that were learned because of maybe not enough coordination. We know that Mueller was coordinating with the Senate Intelligence Committee in terms of his investigation and their investigation. So, I mean, somebody can tell me, like, is this normal? Like, if there was an active investigation happening, would that be normal? And the only kind of thing, and again, this is just maybe my la-la land, like, last grasp hope, is that this has to be such a tight, close-hold thing that it's, like, literally four people in a room somewhere at FBI HQ working the inner circle cases precisely because of the things that we've just mentioned, what Norm mentioned about the leaking and maybe some of the MAGA culture or something like that. Frank, am I just uh, delusional? Look, I'm becoming as concerned as you are. Early on, I was thinking, well, yeah, you know, they, they can't talk to each other because that would DOJ shouldn't be talking about an ongoing investigation with the committee. And throughout my career, certainly nothing at this this scope and level. But yeah, I've been aware of committees investigating things that the Bureau was touching already. And we kept our mouth shut. We told them, stay away from here and here. Please, please stay away from here and here. Because here's the deal. It's fraught with peril for the committees to think about, even think about offering immunity, some kind of immunity yeah. to people or yeah. cutting deals with people. And you may remember several weeks ago, Zoe Lofgren was on CNN and she kind of almost deliberately said something to uh, the host where she said, you know, we just might have to offer immunity to, uh, to, I think it was Clark or somebody. And I thought, you know what she's doing? She is publicly messaging DOJ that she's fed up. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'm very concerned about that because in an ordinary circumstance, DOJ would go to a committee and go, do not talk to these people over here and don't offer this to this guy over here. But I don't see any of that happening. I think there is one thing that may well be happening that we don't know. The four people in a room that you mentioned are probably eight. I mean, there's probably a tank <laughs> team that are there that, you know, there's four kind of to filter things through and therefore to keep the actual investigators and prosecutors insulated in a way. But you raise the great point of potential immunity. And look, we're coming now up, we're told this spring, so it must be within a couple months of the hearings, the marquee event they've been leading to with all kinds of witnesses. And I think nuggets, we don't know what they are yet. That's something that the chair said after Kushner testified. Let me just ask you, what's your sense of the committee's game plan there? And I guess if you were advising them, maybe I should start with you, Norm, as, as Mr. Congress advisor, what would you say? Do they go for broke? Do they just look for 10 Klieg light megaton moments? What should these look like and what do you think they will look like? So one thing that makes me a little nervous is if the war is still going on. Yeah. You know, basically, as we all watch cable news during the day, it's almost all about Ukraine. And 
if that's still happening, then the major impact of these hearings is going to be vastly diluted, and that would be catastrophic. Because I think the clear aim of the committee in the hearings is to impress upon the American people what happened, what led up to it, the degree to which top people from the president on down knew in advance, helped to plan in advance, how much coordination there was, and provide, as they did during the impeachment hearings, a set of videos that show how deeply destructive this was and how close we came to having not just the vice president hung, but our democracy demolished. And for a lot of people who are just not paying close attention or who don't pay close attention to this, the fortunate thing for them is that every single member of the committee will be in sync. I do not think that they're going to try and just uh, use it to score points or have witnesses that look really bad. I think they're going to want to bring in to the public hearings people who will tell them flat out what happened, who will begin to allow them to pull the links together. What concerns me a little bit beyond the question of whether the war basically uses up all the oxygen in the room is the timing of all of this, and that includes the Justice Department. We're talking about hearings in May. If we're fortunate for our political system and our stability, that will be followed pretty quickly by Justice Department actions and indictments. We've got an election coming up in November. The closer you get to the election, the more the backlash occurs, the more we know Republicans are going to be ready to try and get their base excited that it's a witch hunt against them all. If we don't get action fairly soon, this Justice Department might decide, based on uh, past practice, to defer till after the election. If they defer till after the election and the Republicans win the House and or the Senate, then those bodies will do everything they can to hamstring and blow up whatever actions the Justice Department takes. So timing becomes really important here across the board. I agree with everything that Norm said. I do think that there is a huge upside to these hearings if they are given the proper attention and primetime coverage that they should have, which is that this is a rare committee that is all on board with the same goal. And so it's not going to be one of these, you know, circus hearings where Jim Jordan is yelling about Hunter Biden's laptop Great or point. spreading Russian disinformation. I think that there will be a coordinated strategy, not only to have a witness that's going to lay it out there, but you have some very smart people who know how to tell a story. I'm thinking of Representative Raskin and how he presented his case for impeachment. I mean, these are people I think that know how to convey the story. And I'm also hoping that that will be mirrored in whatever report that they put out. So it's not this turgid legal prose that Mueller did that gets, you know, everyone's eyes glaze over and they go burn it in their fireplace. You know, it really has to be something that people can read. Like it needs to read like I could make this into a Netflix series. <laughs> even over two seasons. Like it's got to have that much meat in it and in bite-sized chunks and little episodes. That is my hope of what it will be like. 
And you're sure right that they seem to be up to the job. And by the way, for the Netflix series, that we're not going to have lawyers as we did for the impeachment. This is like the kind of Watergate dramatic Klieg-like moments of individual witnesses. And I think there will be a lot of things they can't do, but they have so much they can and they'll focus on. What do you think they can't do? What What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, to cut to the chase, the fanciful idea of Trump being there oh. or getting maybe they don't get Scavino or maybe they shy away from their colleagues like McCarthy. Nevertheless, they can tell much of the story, maybe almost all of it with cooperative witnesses. So they're not wasting time and they're good directors and, and choreographers, I think, for 30-minute, chunky, exciting testimony, boom, 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 rather than actually wrestling matches with recalcitrant witnesses. That's what I mean. Just a last thought on public hearings. Vitally essential for the health of the nation. Got to put this stuff on the record. I get that. I'm hopeful, as Norm is, in kind of the ideal circumstance that this has all been strategized, and as soon as this goes public and the, the sentiment changes, that the grand jury that's already convened, we've heard this recently, right? This is all going to come into place. Fantastic. I, I have my doubts. And the issue is really who is this for, the, these public hearings? Who's the audience? Because it's not going to be broadcast on Fox News at all. And it won't even be referenced. So we're preaching to the choir, or are we preaching to Merrick Garland? Is this really set up? So that Garland can now go, yep, see, I, I told you, and now here we come. I think it's an audience of one. Yeah. I, I almost think it's an audience of one. Or to history or to six undecided voters in the whole country. Well, it, there, there's more than six. I mean, I, first, Asha used a key term, prime time. They should not do these in the normal congressional fashion at 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. Right. They should be prime time. But I also think there is an audience of, you know, it's cliched, but college-educated suburban voters, more women than men, many of whom have been Republican, who have not necessarily followed this closely, who need to know, and we see this in surveys all the time, people who just want to change don't think about what's happened to the contemporary Republican Party from the top on down. And if they're jolted into realizing that this is a party that officially is there to overturn the results of elections, as we're seeing in state after state. Maybe it'll make a difference to the broader public's understanding of what's going on in the country. But I think the key audience is not just one. It's Lisa Monaco. It's all the others in the Justice Department as well. This is not a one-man operation. It's not just Merrick Garland. He's got a team. It's a hell of an impressive team. And if they're following and understand the gravity of this, that could make a big difference. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we hop into the beer cooler to ask the question, to IPA or not IPA? The India Pale Ale has become synonymous with the word hoppy, and it's that hoppiness that's created a bittersweet relationship with IPAs that has divided beer lovers across the world into two categories. Those who love this style of the pale ale for its full-flavored bite with flavors of lemon and pine needle 
plus typically higher alcohol content. And then those who prefer a little less sharpness with each sip. So what gives IPAs that signature bite? Well, there's another abbreviation you should know, IBU, which stands for International Bitterness Units. The higher the IBU, the more bitter the beer. Luckily, at Total Wine and More, we carry an array of IPAs that offer up a huge range of happiness. We've all been bitten by a hoppy IPA in our past. Swing by your local Total Wine and More and let our guides find you an IPA that's more Y-O-U. So find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and More. Cheers! And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. This is the perfect segue, actually, about the Republican Party to the other big chunk I wanted to cover. Let's go 5,000 miles east to the war of Russian aggression, but still focus on the Republican Party. So on Tuesday, the House votes on a resolution reaffirming support for NATO. That seems to be like voting for, well, I was going to say the Boy Scouts, but maybe that's the wrong thing, Little League. And more than a third of the GOP broke from the consensus and voted against. What's up with the Republican Party that a third of the party won't express support for NATO? I think this is more a part of America first, which has really become America only. It's about everyone else be damned. We can do this ourselves. We're not going to interfere in other nations' problems. We got our own And, of course, if authoritarian dictators want to do their thing, we should, at a minimum, let them do their thing and not worry about it. Uh, At a maximum, we kind of like uh, authoritarian dictators. So that's what this is about. This is also the Trump platform. The Russian invasion has really put this MAGA wing in a a difficult position, right? Not a difficult position, but it's like to stay loyal to Trump is to have to not be in favor of NATO, to say that it was okay to withhold security assistance to Ukraine. I mean, all all of these things that have direct lines, his rhetoric, his actions over these four years. So I think that if Trump came out tomorrow and was like, NATO is the best thing since sliced bread, they would all follow. They had to have another vote. You would see all 63 of those people on board with NATO. I mean, I think that he is the person who is leading the charge and It's like whatever crazy he does, it has to have some coherent sense in the way that they then vote, I guess. So I think that he's the one that is influencing that piece of it. So I I see a lot of strands here. One is this sort of sentiment even goes back before Trump. Pat Buchanan, the staunch anti-communist for a long time, then became a crazed populist who began to say positive things about Putin. And it follows on Frank's point about preferring an autocrat to a, a Democrat, small d. A second part of this is it's not a coincidence that Vladimir Putin talked about the cancel culture and referenced J.K. Rowling. There is a good share of that Republican base, especially the evangelical part of the base, that really resonates to the idea of a guy who takes on transsexuals, homosexuals, all kinds of things that the base of the Republican Party now is railing against, pedophilia, all the other elements. He knows how to play on that. And it's a reflection of that as well. And then to Asha's point, 
we can call it a Republican Party. It's frankly a cult, a cult where if the leaders of the cult take a position and that becomes the theology, that becomes their theology as well. And if that theology changes because the cult leaders say it should change, then that will change uh, too. But also keep in mind that while you had 63 who voted against NATO, you had 95% of them who voted against impeaching Trump after he blackmailed Zelensky and held up the weapons that he needed to try and get something to stick it to Joe Biden. So the fact that there were only 63 of them, you could argue, is maybe a a step in the positive direction. All right. I'm getting a nauseating deja vu here. So let's let's bear down on the war itself. And I really want to take advantage of Frank and Asha's national security experience. Asha, you in particular, you talked a little bit about this whole notion. War is off the table. No fly zones off the table. But a lot of stuff is maybe I'd say under the table unconventional warfare, a gray zone, as you sort of put it, really aggressive, newfangled cyber warfare. Can you speak to your sense of what besides furnishing actual weapons and the like in the sort of more shadow areas of modern warfare are we now doing or able to do to aid Ukraine? Well, first, let's not forget that we have seen perhaps an unprecedented disclosure of otherwise secret and top secret intelligence by an American president, really never before at this level, almost on a daily basis for a while. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. It means, thankfully, that our intelligence community and the allies have a myriad of sources and methods, techniques, humans, technical sources that gives the president great confidence to announce from a, a podium Putin's going to attack next week, or he's going to do this, or he's not getting this brief to him. By the way, not only is it a good strategic tool to get out in front and help the Ukrainians, but it's got to be driving Putin crazy from a counterintelligence standpoint. He's got to be expending a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out where the compromises are. Which phone can I use or can't use? Which general has given this up? Which guy in London is working for the allies? All of that going on. The FBI domestically, we saw reports that they're actually pushing messages to uh, mobile devices around Russian diplomatic establishments with, you know, please contact the FBI (laughs) at this following number, right? I mean, this is driving them crazy. The other neat thing about this is you see the allies now expelling and declaring PNG, all these so-called diplomats who are acting- Persona non grata, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, persona non grata. Well, what I'm more fascinated by having been a part of these decisions in the past is who they're not expelling because again- Putin's got to be going, uh-oh, they didn't expel they Igor. They kept so-and-so. Yeah. They kept Igor. So <laughs> yeah. Igor is, right? This is just I'm all going on beneath the surface. And then on a far more dramatic level, the most sensitive thing a president can do, in my opinion, is issue what's called a covert action order. Now, we have no idea. By the way, I've been slapped around for even mentioning this in this context. But you can go look it up. It's not a secret thing. But it is secret when it's issued. And it means that with the briefing to the Gang of Eight in Congress, the president can tell the CIA and the intelligence community, I want you to do this, this, and this to the point where we will never admit we did it. And I have to tell you, when I see the kind of supply chain that's been developed into Ukraine, and Lord knows what else, there's, there's a good chance that's happened. 
it's a good chance that's happened. Yeah. So to Frank's first point, I mean, we really took advantage, for example, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and when the Russian economy was in shambles. That was a great time to recruit spies because they you have something to exploit. There's uncertainty. And I think that was the first thing I thought of when we began to implement all these sanctions is what is the future for these people, for these intelligence folks um, who are now, you know, living high on the hog here in the West somewhere on, on their assignment? I mean, this is a great time to recruit them and to have them get on board. So I, I suspect that we will get a lot of sources through this time period, which will be really good for us. On the point of Biden releasing classified information, I think this gets to finally catching up with understanding that the information sphere is a battleground. And just like when Frank and I, you know, went through Quantico, they teach you something with firearms, which is action beats reaction, which means that, you know, you have first mover advantage. You can't sit there and wait to figure out what your adversary is doing because you're going to end up dead, shot. And I think the same thing is true in information warfare. That once your adversary's narrative takes root, it is very difficult to undo it or counter it. You're just in this reactive position. And what Biden has done, you know, he clearly has people who understand how Russia has been engaging in information warfare. And the preemptive release of this classified information is the way that you neutralize propaganda and disinformation. Because once Anthony Blinken goes in front of the UN and says, here's what they're going to say. They're going to say that there's genocide. They're going to say that the Ukrainians did a chemical attack. Well, guess what? Then when Russia tries to do it, no one's listening. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that that has been really good. And the narrative now has been shaped in a way that is really, I think, unified world support around Ukraine. And of course, Zelensky is also very savvy. The Ukrainians are very savvy about information warfare, and they know how to play it, too. Finally, on the covert operation, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of tools that we have short of kinetic war, <laughs> of, of use of force. Covert action is one of them. Political warfare that we did all during the Cold War. And in terms of information operations, you know, right now, a big covert operation could be just getting information to Russians about what is happening, piercing that veil so that they can begin to question their own leadership. That could be very huge for us. So I think that there's a ton of stuff that we can do. Also, offensive cyber operations, which I think, you know, now we have the capability to do that. I think before, like, the 2018 midterms and the 2020 election, I believe that we engaged in cyber operations to, I don't even know, like disable or free, you know, kind of do things. And this is all happening behind the scenes, you know, and it's hard to really have a meaningful discussion because as Frank said, it's you know, the point of it is, uh, is covert and you often want plausible deniability, like all your defense computers shut down. We're not going to be like, hey, that was us. We're going to pretend that it wasn't, even if everybody knows it's us. But I do think that this toolbox of things that we can do isn't maybe emphasized enough in all of the ways that we can be helping and supportive in Ukraine's efforts. Asha, that is all brilliant stuff. Seriously, I, that's worth the price of admission on the podcast itself and very eye-opening. All right, with the revelation of the atrocities in Bucha, the drumbeat continues to increase for some war crimes prosecution of Putin and other Russian officials. And of course, the case would have to be meticulously assembled, but seems strong. The rub is, how do you get Putin in the dock in The Hague at the International Criminal Court? 
I think the precedent here is not the International Criminal Court. It's Eichmann. Ah. It's Israel using the authority to take Eichmann out and bring him back to Israel and try him for crimes against humanity. That's the issue, right? Milosevic, Noriega, Eichmann. Yeah. Right. And it's not just Putin. I think you really begin to get down. And that's where perhaps intelligence about who was ordering the direct attacks on civilians and who carried out those orders, the degree to which you can get there and grab them if they leave Russia at all and take them uh, to someplace and try them would be just absolutely devastating. Yeah, and Norm, we we just talked, right, about the incredible sources our intelligence mm-hmm. community has. So, yeah. you know, the Germans have intercepted ru- soldiers, yeah. uh, right? They probably have it. Yeah. They probably have it. This is a whole episode's worth, but I'm just going to serve it up for any quick thoughts about China, which now seems to be at least propaganda-wise positioning itself with Russia, although it's been kind of arm's length in certain operational ways, are we seeing a possible historic readjustment of the whole global geopolitical structure, China and Russia against the world? Any thoughts at all there? I think China's mortified by what uh, Putin's done, I think, because he's gone way beyond what they thought he was going to do. The Asian concept of saving face and never embarrassing anyone, I think Putin screwed them. And I, I just think China's being very careful and should be about how closely associated they're going to be with this guy because th- he's not helping them right now. Screwed them in what way, Frank? Can you clarify? So, for example, when Putin went to the Olympics mm-hmm. recently and there's much talk of he tells Xi, hey, uh, I- I'm going to hold off. Xi tells him, I want you to hold off until after the Olympics. What I'm hearing is that what Putin may have told him was, I'm going to go in with a lightning strike. I'm going to take out Zelensky, and this will all be over in a week. Don't worry about it. And it's not that at all. And now, you know, China's like, are we in with this guy or not? I would just add, I think the degree to which NATO has been strengthened has freaked out China. Mm -hmm. China's scared to death of an Asian NATO of the United States joining together with Australia, with Japan, with South Korea, very possibly with other countries in the region as a counterweight to them. And that, I gather, is a message that's being said over and over again internally in China. And we shouldn't leave this without also mentioning the dilemma that we have with India, which could try to obviate all of the economic sanctions, at least easing the economic blow to Russia. And we got to figure out with a leader in uh, India who's not exactly a Democrat, small d, what we do there as well. And I think that's the real global realignment, right? That if you end up with India, Russia, and China, because India and China are historically, like, you would not see those bedfellows. No. That would be a, a very huge shift in terms of global power. Man, what a rich and smart discussion. I love this job. We are out of time except for a minute to our final feature of Talking Five, where we all take a question from a listener and have to answer in five words or fewer. And the question is, so Justice Jackson, I think she's a justice. This this would be a law school exam, but she doesn't actually take her place on the court till after the end of the term when Breyer leaves. So the question is, in this little gap months, what should she do? Go to the beach. That's what I do. With a bunch of books, away from everyone. <laughs> For me, 
teach debate to my urban kids. We do an urban debate league, public school kids in this area. She was a debater. Mm. Boy, do I want to get her involved. So uh, following on Asha's theme, vacation with Clarence and Ginny. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why would you wish that on her? Oh, I'm wishing it on them. I'm uh, wishing it on them. <laughs> I'll go with learn baseball, make court team. Nine people, that is. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Frank, Norm, and Asha. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us now on YouTube, where we will be posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. For example, just in the last few days, we had our live Q&A for subscribers, and it is now available to all on our YouTube link. And we're always available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. We've got a few very good ones coming in the next week or so. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, Sound engineering this week, also by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. 